Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Sarah Arawesti has been described as one of America's few feminist Ladino artists. She is a musician, a singer, but also a linguist and Jewish historian of sorts. She has produced seven albums, including one that honors what was once North Macedonia's largest Jewish communities in Monastir, the city now known as Bitola. Her ancestors' beloved city was home to one of many Jewish communities decimated by the Nazis and their collaborators during World War II. To mark International Holocaust Remembrance this week, Sarah is with us now to talk about the inspiration behind that album and her career in general. Sarah, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with your career in general. Back in the 90s, you created the New Jewish Musics Initiative for the Foundation for Jewish Culture, and there you discovered a lot of energy was channeled into Ashkenazi klezmer music, but not as much into traditional Sephardic music, right? Exactly. I was tasked with finding 20 of the most cutting-edge Jewish musicians of the time, and I was supposed to pair them with 20 very cutting-edge promoters and producers. And not for lack of trying, I really couldn't find cutting-edge Sephardic musicians at the time. It was the explosion of klezmer, klezmer fusions of every sort, klezmer punk, klezmer jazz, klezmer rock, klezmer, you know, you name it. Um, And it was so inspiring to see what was happening in Jewish music at the time, but I really couldn't see myself in that musical world. There were very few Sephardic musicians uh, working beyond the traditional scope at the time. So you started a Ladino rock band. Tell me about that. A few weeks after that initiative launched, I, I I gave my note of resignation to start my Ladino rock band, and I can tell you my mother was not too thrilled. Um, but who's <laughs> laughing now, 20 years later? <laughs> that is awesome. How did you find people to be part of this initiative? After I left my job at the National Foundation for Jewish Culture, I picked up an old dusty guitar that had been in my closet for years and years and years. And, you know, remarkably, the first songs that I started strumming were these Ladino songs that I had known from years past. And I I don't know exactly what that impulse was, but clearly my heart um, was was so attached to this music. It was the first thing that came to mind. And um, I needed to improve my my guitar chops. So um, I looked for a guitar teacher and it just so happened that the teacher that was recommended to me um, shared the same Sephardic background as myself. And that was, you know, really eye-opening to me that there were other people out there in the musical world, you know, young and vibrant like myself, who cared about this music. And together we started arranging the Ladino music that I had had in my ear for years. And he was a real rock guitarist. So naturally, that's sort of how the music came out. And, you know, I've never hidden the fact that I am American. I wasn't born in the Balkans like my grandparents. And I grew up on rock and roll. And that is really how I felt the music at first. I wasn't trying to change the music. Did you grow up speaking Ladino at home or listening to Ladino music? 
I did not. And that's one of the reasons why I have felt so passionate about not only learning it for myself, but but passing it on and, and teaching it to others. Um, I have a very typical immigrant story in that my grandfather's family was escaping war. In his case, it was the Balkan Wars. Those are wars we don't talk about that much. Um, in 1912, 1913, when the Ottoman Empire essentially fell, um, that's when many, many Sephardim left the Eastern Mediterranean and came to America, to Israel, to South America. My family ended up in Rochester, New York, and they wanted to become American very, very quickly and leave the old country behind. So Ladino was one of the things, sadly, that was left behind and it was not passed on to the next generation. And I knew growing up that I came from a very proud Sephardic family. And you could hear that through the foods we ate and the customs and some of the songs and just the stories that my elders told us, but the language was not part of it. And I always felt like I was missing something. So I really made it my mission as I got older to learn it for myself. Now, much of the Balkan Jewish community was lost during the Balkan Wars when your grandparents left. But in 1943, the region now known as North Macedonia was under the control of Bulgaria, which was allied with the Nazis. These stories are always so complicated. So I consulted with Rabbi Andrew Baker, AJC's Director of International Jewish Affairs, who helped get a memorial to Macedonian Jewry off the ground there. Bulgaria was on the wrong side of the war, clearly. The 50,000 Jews in Bulgaria proper were forced to wear yellow stars, the men were sent to labor camps, but the public outcry when the king issued a deportation order for Jews spared them from the death camps. Jews in the Macedonian region were not so fortunate, as you know. There is an ongoing debate over Bulgaria's role, but Bulgarian police did round up the Jews in Batola for the Nazis to deport them. That is not in dispute. Your latest album, Monastir, is in three languages to honor that forsaken Jewish community. Can you tell us about who and what was lost? Sure. Monastir is such a special community, and sadly, it really doesn't get a lot of recognition. Um, Its neighbor, Salonika, which was known as the Jerusalem of the Balkans in Greece, really has gotten a lot of credit because it was bigger. It was a port city. But equally so, Monastir was a vibrant, thriving community that had quite a large population And it was lesser known because it was landlocked. But because it was more insular, it was able to retain a lot of its unique Sephardic customs, including its dialect of Ladino, which is slightly different than its neighbors. And it was a community that was very much integrated into society. We talk a lot about convivencia, which was pre-Inquisition times when Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived peacefully together. But that sort of that experiment really lasted for monastery. And Jews were integrated into society and were well respected by their neighbors. And on March 11th, 1943, 98% of the Jewish population was exterminated. They were taken to Treblinka. And, you know, with that, you lose an entire culture, 98%. I mean, it's it's staggering. Luckily, my grandfather and his family, they had already come to America, but I have many relatives who stayed. 
And I've spoken quite a lot about my one still surviving cousin, um, my grandfather's first cousin, Rochelle Nachmias. She was one of the 2% who, who survived, and she's still alive today at 104 years old. And she's just a miracle. And I'm so blessed to have her. Her memory still is so sharp, and she still shares stories. And I've used a lot of her stories and memories in my own work, and it's very much on display in the monastery album. How did Rochelle survive? So again, it's something we don't really know a lot about, um, how Muslim populations really helped their Jewish neighbors. And especially in Albania, there's a wonderful tradition in Albania called Besa, which is a principle that if somebody comes to you asking for help, you, you are obligated to provide it. And it was such a strong principle in World War II that many, many Jews were were indeed saved by Albanian Muslims. And my cousin Rochelle was hidden in the trunk of a car and taken to the border of Albania, where she was given a new passport, a new identity of Fatima Hussein. And she pretended to, to be Muslim and live with a Muslim family for the duration of the war. And when she came back to Monastir after the war ended, Everything was gone. Her entire family had been killed. Um, Her entire community, the city was destroyed. And eventually she found her way to America. You're absolutely right. The Jewish lives saved by Albanian Muslims is not talked about nearly enough. Sarah, can you clarify for us, the city of Monastir has a different name now, right? Its modern name is Bitola. At the time that my grandfather lived there, it was you know, the Ottoman Empire. It was Upper Greece, Lower Yugoslavia, that region um, today, which is known as North Macedonia. But I have to say, as, as a child, it was very confusing to me because my grandfather always used to say he was from Greece, but that he was a Turk and that he spoke Spaniel. If you understand Sephardic culture, modern Sephardic culture, you would understand how how confusing (laughs) that is. But it makes perfect sense now. (laughs) And you've been to Bitola many times. Tell us about those trips and the moment that inspired the album Monastir. The first time, it's a really beautiful story. In 2014, I was interviewed by a Macedonian magazine, and it was conducted over email, and they translated everything I said into Macedonian. And, you know, I thought it was very lovely that they wanted to interview me. I think somebody found a picture online of um, of my grandfather and connected me to, to Monastir, and they were trying to capitalize on that. Well, the last question was, would you ever consider performing in in, in Monastir, again, now known as Bitola. And of course, I said in the interview, it would, be, it would be a dream come true. But at the time, I didn't know how I could make that happen. I really had no connections to Monastir at all beyond my own family you know, history. Fast forward, over the course of the next two years, I was Facebook friended <laughs> by dozens and dozens and dozens of Macedonians who had seen that article. And at first, you know, you get Facebook friend requests all the time from strangers, and I thought nothing of it. But, you know, they kept on coming. And I realized that they weren't just, you know, blank requests. They were really, people would write me notes and letters and say, I understand you're from from Monastir. I'd love to learn more. What was your family's history? Do you know which street they lived on? You know, they were really interested in actually learning 
about my family. And I thought it was, you know, again, it, it's, I thought it was cute, nice. I didn't think so much about it until 2017, I was invited to perform in nearby Bulgaria, which is right over the border. And I emailed some of those Facebook friends and said, how crazy is it if I'm in Bulgaria to try to come over to Bitsula? And not only did they say, oh, you have to come, they actually arranged the entire trip from my transportation to my accommodations, to my meals, to a sold out concert. These were people I'd never met. I had no connection to beyond Facebook and they planned this entire trip. And it was just, I I didn't know at the time how transformative that experience would be and how it would literally change the course of my life for the next few years. I ended up going for the first time in 2017 The red carpet was rolled out for me. I was whisked away to the Jewish cemetery, which is the oldest cemetery in, um, Jewish cemetery in the Balkans. And they were so eager to show me the tombstones of my ancestors. And they walked me down the Jewish, old Jewish neighborhoods, pointing out signs of Jewish life in the city. And I should say there are no Jews left. There is not a single Jew who lives in Bitola anymore. And these people, they took me to homes where um, strangers opened their doors offering me cakes and tea so that they could explain to me how their grandparents used to know Jews you know, back before World War II. Everybody I met had a story to tell me of some connection to the Jewish community. And I was just, I was so overwhelmed by this love and respect that these strangers showed for my Jewish history. I couldn't understand it. And after a beautiful show, they all took me out to dinner that night. And this was a collection of a dozen, you know, complete strangers to me. And I looked around the room and I said, why are you doing this for me? And I quickly learned that it was not because of a sense of guilt We talk a lot about generational trauma and the sins of our parents and ancestors. And these people, not only did they themselves obviously have nothing to do with what happened on, you know, in in March 1943, um, but it's a whole political discussion we're not going to get into now about exactly what happened. But suffice it to say that it's not a feeling of guilt that they have. It's rather they truly miss the Jewish community, and they believe that something was taken away from them, that that their own national identity and sense of history is missing something because the Jewish community is no longer there. They are just desperate to connect with Jewish life because they know it's their own history. And I have traveled the world performing and sharing Sephardic culture for you know over two decades now, and I've never experienced this passion and love for Jewish history as I have in Bitsula today. It's remarkable because not a single person there is, is Jewish. And I wanted to know that this wasn't a fluke. And so I returned to America and I wrote a lot about it. And I, the very next year, <laughs> brought a delegation of 20 other American Jews with me so they could witness what I had. It was not a fluke. And I had a much bigger concert this time. It was sponsored not only by the Israeli government and also the city of Bitula. But the real aha moment for me was after this concert, there was a snapshot somebody took that in this one photograph, you can see Jews 
Christians, Muslims, Israelis, Macedonians, myself, all dancing and singing on the rooftop of a very famous hotel called Epinal. And this one photograph, it was, you know, convivencia at its best. And it was all of us in this one setting. And I I said, aha, this, this is it. I need to capture this moment because out of so much destruction and tragedy, look at us now. I mean, we are creating joy and music and we are creating new memories and stories. And I need to harness this somehow and share this with the world. So that was really the inception of the Monastir Project. I reached out to two of the musicians in that snapshot on the rooftop and I said, let's do this. And the result is two years of research of curating music in three different languages um, that was unique to the Jewish community of Monastir prior to World War II. One of the Ladino songs off the album that you composed, Espinola, is based on research done in 1927. A famous ethnomusicologist recorded citizens of Monastir speaking and singing Ladino songs, but without music. So we had the lyrics, but not the melodies. Let's listen to a clip. One of the songs that was transcribed was traced back to the 1500s in Barcelona. And these lyrics are incredible. They tell the story of a queen who made a decree that any woman who was pregnant with twins would be considered an adulteress and would be murdered. And wouldn't you know, the queen herself becomes pregnant with twins. And so to save herself from dishonor, she throws one of the babies into the ocean and she keeps the other. The one who was thrown into the ocean is rescued by fishermen and taken to the Turkish king and adopted and raised to the highest ranks. And this song on its own is, you know, a fascinating song, but If you really think about its origins, it is an allegory for the Jews of Spain who were kicked out by their motherland. You know, their brothers were allowed to stay and the Jews were kicked out into the sea and saved by the Turkish king and raised to the highest ranks. So, you know, the fact that these lyrics were hundreds and hundreds of years old and were passed down orally for centuries. And I just, I had to do something with that song. Next, let's get into a song which you translated into Hebrew, Giovanno Javanke. And it's sung by a Macedonian Jew on the album. This is a song that is beloved not only from Monastir, but throughout the Balkans. Why did you translate it into Hebrew? The man who sings it, he's in his 80s. He currently lives in Israel. But his mother was born in Monastir and loved this song so much. It was the last song she ever sang 
literally, she sang it on her deathbed. And the song has his story interwoven through it in Hebrew. And, you know, you have to have a box of tissues with you when you listen to this song. He introduces it and says that he spoke to his mother and she starts singing this song and she asks him, oh, is this a song from Monastir? And she sings it to him and they say goodbye. And then a couple of hours later, he gets a phone call to say that she had passed on and it was literally the last song. And she just felt so connected to Monastir and to the music. And that has always stayed with him. And so in his honor and her honor, we translated it and recorded it in Hebrew to combine his story. It is so touching. Wow. Let's listen to a clip of that. Sarah, we already talked about the disproportionate attention given to Ashkenazi klezmer music, but the same could be said for Holocaust education. We don't hear about Bitola or Monastir when we learn about the Holocaust. We learn about Germany. We learn about Poland, Czechoslovakia. Why don't we learn about the Balkan Jewish community that was lost? It's just the sort of Ashkenormative way that our society has sort of settled into Germany, Poland, Austria, Czechoslovakia. Those are the countries we think of when we think of the Holocaust. But in fact, all of the Balkans and so many other places were so greatly affected. But it is so true that Sephardic communities um, were left out of the narrative in in many, many cases um, because so few people know our history because proportionally far more of us perished in World War II. In Monastir, that one city lost 98% of its Jewish population, 98%. So once you lose such you know, astronomical numbers, you lose the culture, you lose the songs, you lose the language, you lose everything that has to do with that community. So there are just far fewer people left to pass down the knowledge and the traditions. Like so many cultures that have small numbers, it's also about assimilation. My family came to America. In their case, they were escaping an earlier war, the Balkan Wars, but they were escaping war and they wanted to leave the sad memories uh, behind. And so they wanted to become successful in their new country. And so they became American and the language was not passed down. The stories were, uh, many of the stories were, and certainly some songs and food staples, but the overall culture really was not passed out in a way that I felt satisfying, which is why I've made it my commitment to make sure that these stories are not lost. I really feel compelled to make sure that my peers and for all the people out there who don't know what Ladino is and don't know the story of Sephardic Jews in the Holocaust or even at all, that we can expose these beautiful, beautiful stories and histories to them. Because as I like to say, Sephardic culture is Jewish culture. You can't separate the two. Sephardic culture is a part of this Jewish enterprise that we're all members of. And it's important that even if Sephardic tradition is not your own background, it is part of your history and you should learn about it. 
Before we go, I want to talk to you about one more song you composed, Me Monastir, which is a collection of memories passed down from your grandfather and your still-living cousin, Rochelle. The song references a special story about a mezuzah. When Rachel's family was taken away on March 11th, 1943, their Christian neighbor knew how important a mezuzah was to a Jewish family. And she actually took the mezuzah off the door in the hopes that one day she could return it to the family. Of course, the family was all murdered, but my cousin Rochelle, years later, the neighbor found her and returned the mezuzah. And I have held this mezuzah. Rochelle still has it in her possession. It is just, you can't not be affected by holding that in your hands. And of course, I needed to write a song incorporating that. Well, the upside of a virtual studio is that you can do an interview while seated at your piano. And you're going to sing that song live for us now. Sarah, thank you for helping us remember and capture a more complete picture of what was lost during the Shoah. Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Arowesti, performing Me Monastir. Guardamos tus voces, 
Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. It's been more than a week since four hostages were taken at a synagogue in Texas, just two hours from where I spent part of my childhood and adolescence. Hours after the news broke, my mother texted, Are you watching? I replied, No, I can't. My husband noted that most major media outlets weren't covering the situation. I asked him not to talk about it. He didn't listen. Later that week, my sister asked me if I was okay. I told her I was busy. And I was. I had a job to do. You heard me doing it. I interviewed Muslim and Jewish leaders about the importance of standing in solidarity. And then later that week, I talked to our CEO, David Harris, about the courage it took for Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt to stand up to someone who tried to deny the murder of six million Jews. But the truth is, I was in a form of denial myself. I could not confront the horror that unfolded in Texas just days before. No, no one died. They all escaped, thanks to the heroic efforts and security training the rabbi received. Security training. I imagine turning to a rabbi for a lot of things, but not for advice on how to fend off an armed terrorist. Thank God this did not end with yet another mass loss of life. Thank God I didn't find myself trying to explain another front-page story to my kids. But the fact remains that the terrorists chose Congregation Beth Israel because it was Jewish, and those four hostages were lucky. My husband and I intended to be members of a synagogue by now. My son is seven and more than ready for Hebrew school. So is my five-year-old daughter, frankly. But the pandemic threw a wrench into our shul shopping. In a way, I've been grateful that I could postpone what I have come to consider a necessary burden of parenthood. Yes, a burden. Because I anticipate going to the synagogue on Shabbat, on the high holidays, on any holidays, and greeting the uniformed guard at the door will be nerve-wracking and scary every single time. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I also attended a bar mitzvah last week. We were virtual guests. Only close family attended the ceremony because of Omicron. As the family stood before the ark and others sat in the pews, as the young man stood at the bima, I was overwhelmed by the bravery that must have required just 36 hours after the hostages escaped Beth Israel. The bar mitzvah's father proclaimed terrorism and anti-Semitism would not win before bestowing his words of praise and pride upon his son. I watched with admiration, envious of their courage. I listened to the young man's optimism, and I watched my children sit through the entire service, mesmerized and intrigued. And so last week, I found myself slow to confront what had happened because I was grappling with what it meant for my own responsibility as a parent, as a member of the Jewish community, as a journalist. I found myself grappling with my purpose, our purpose. They say it takes some time to process a trauma. I can only imagine what the hostages in Colleyville and their families are still going through. The same for survivors of Pittsburgh, Poway, Paris, Toulouse, Jersey City. The list goes on. We all are shouldering a burden. Because regardless of whether you're part of a synagogue or an advocacy organization or you simply swim at the JCC pool, we are part of one community. And keeping that in mind is indeed necessary. Shabbat Shalom. In case you missed it, be sure to listen to last week's interview with AJC CEO David Harris about AJC's behind-the-scenes role at Deborah Lipstadt's infamous Holocaust denial trial. And tune in next week for a tribute to slain journalist Daniel Pearl 20 years after his death. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. 
The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 